we've learned anything from these past couple of years, my fellow Americans, is that personal medical freedom and liberty are in crisis. America Out Loud Pulse brings together the top experts in healthcare-related fields to keep you a beat ahead. Welcome to America Out Loud Pulse. This is Peter R. Bregan, MD, psychiatrist, and in some ways, not a psychiatrist. <laughs> and here is my wife, Ginger R. Bregan. Not an MD. Hi, folks. And we're a wonderful team. Um, I just am so glad to be doing this with you, honey. Thank you. I mean, it's really... How long have we been doing it now? You know, you're going to be making me blush on the radio. Yes. How long have we been doing this together on the radio together? Because we've been together 40 years, folks, as many of you know. It took him him about 38 and a half years to get me to do this. And it took Malcolm, who is the head of America Out Loud dot news, upon which you are hearing America Out Loud Pulse. Well, look, if you're getting shy, I'm going to go and talk about America Out Loud Pulse. We should talk with our guest. Yeah, well, my guest in a minute is is a man who uh, my respect for is enormous. I mean, really enormous. His publications, he's somebody that probably many, many people here haven't become familiar with. His name is Patrick D. Hahn, H-A-H-N. He's a PhD. It's interesting he doesn't put his PhD right there. And he's, he's taught for many years at a university. And he is literally an independent freelance writer, an independent scholar, an independent researcher. How many of those have any of you met? They're really rare beings. His first book, Madness and Genetic Determination, debunks the entire field of its genetic and looks at is it metabolic and is it anything but a human experience? So he and I were working on issues like this for a long time. Patrick, and by the way, Han is H-A-H-N. So his first book is Medication, Genetics, and Genetic Determinism. And, you know, you got it. How long have we been working together? I was trying to fathom that. Uh, I think since 2015 or 2016. Yes, a long time now. You know, and to me, it seems even longer, but that's a pretty long time. I mean, that's a quarter century or something. Um, It's eight years yeah. Oh, oh, it's it's only eight years. I'm sorry. We may have to re-record this or something. No, it's all right. Keep going. <laughs> How can it only be eight years? A I lot mean, has happened in the last three years. It feels like oh we've lived God. a That's quarter century. We were working very closely on. Let me tell you three of his books. Not working on the books together. He's entirely independent. But um, his uh, his previous books were uh, Madness and Genetic Determinism, Prescription for Sorrow, which traces the history of the so-called antidepressants, 
And that's his own description of it. In his third book, Obedience to Pills, describing the harms wrought by drugs, commonly prescribed for ADHD. I mean, you might, if you know the titles of my own books, think to yourself that that I could have written books like that. Well, it would have been very different books with different people. But Patrick's work is, to me, of the, just enormous importance. He's one of a, maybe not even a handful of scholars who has consistently used reason and science to look at psychiatry. Um, so I'm not sure just where to begin. Do you have an idea, uh, Patrick? Oh, one more last thing. We're going to later go on and talk about his latest book, The Day the Science Died, which is about vaccines. So, I mean, this man's career parallels so much with mine. And I've noticed that with a few other really outstanding researchers. We just got interested in the psychiatry, and then we got uh, interested in the fraud we saw in COVID-19. So um, let me, I'm, I'm kind of I'm bumbling around here. But let me hand it over to Patrick Hahn. Okay, it's good to be back. <laughs> it's uh, good to have you back. Before I begin, I just wanted to mention, I now have a new website with an easy to remember domain name, patrickhahn.net. Can't get much easier than that. No, that's great. patrickhahn.net. Good. Yes, and uh, my background is not in medicine or psychology. It's in evolutionary biology. And uh, two things have always been obvious to me. One is that our bodies evolved to function and to function very well. They didn't evolve to malfunction. And I've long regarded with distaste this view of ourselves as fragile creatures who need enormous amounts of medical intervention uh, all throughout our lives to keep us alive. And uh, I became aware of some capacities that were going unused at the preposterously advanced age of 51. I went back to school and I enrolled in the writing, science writing program at the Johns Hopkins University. And at the even more preposterously advanced age of 54, I walked across the stage and collected my second master's degree. And since then, it's been an incredible journey. Uh, four books in four years. Uh, my first book. No wonder uh, I think we've been together for 20 years. <laughs> well, a lot has happened in the past eight or nine years. Good. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, the... Uh, I wanted to write about over-medicalization, not specifically psychiatry, but uh, if you want to write about over-medicalization, psychiatry gives you an endless vein of material. Uh, when I began this, I accepted the received wisdom that there is such a thing as mental illness. Uh, I no longer accept that. Uh, there are the I, I uh, the term mental illness is a semantic mistake. It's like saying a purple idea or a wise room. You put those two words together, they don't even make any sense. So there are no mental illnesses. Uh, there are 
people with problems. Everybody has problems with living. Some people have terrible problems with living. But uh, problems with living are not drug-treatable diseases. Yes, my, my first book, Madness and Genetic Determinism, traced the history of psychiatric genetics from the 19th century uh, all the way up to the present day. And I concluded, uh, no way, no how are these. Uh, it was a, the focus was on schizophrenia, which is generally regarded as the most severe of all those conditions called mental illness, and also the one most likely to have a hereditary basis. And uh, I concluded that the term schizophrenia is not even a coherent diagnostic category, but you don't even have to accept that to accept the rest of my argument. Whatever you call this condition, it is not hereditary. So that led me to the question, what does cause these complaints, hallucinations, delusions, paranoia, that fall under the rubric of schizophrenia. And I found these complaints are caused. Notice I didn't say triggered. They are caused by child sexual abuse, physical abuse, emotional abuse, and every other category of trauma and loss. Uh, this correlation is robust, reliable, dose-dependent. Uh, it cuts across income brackets. It cuts across ethnic identities. It cuts across national boundaries. It has been demonstrated again and again in cross-sectional studies, population-based cohort studies, uh, case control studies. There are so many studies demonstrating the connection between trauma and schizophrenia. We now have meta-analyses of the meta-analyses. There is no doubt what common sense tells us is absolutely correct. Bad things happen. And they can drive you crazy. And that led me to the question, uh, well, if these conditions are caused by social and psychological factors, perhaps they can be addressed. Everywhere we look in COVID, which we're going to get to too, but I know a lot of our audience is just most interested in what we're talking about right now, the money is there period. Right now, there's a huge bunch of nonsense around autism, which has a, a, a fairly new concept, going back to the 40s as a really defined description of children who don't grow up able to relate to people in a human fashion. They actually don't see any difference between people in the severe cases and objects. If somebody gives them an injection and it hurts them, they hit the needle. They don't see the person there harming them and respond to the person. And we know a lot about the kind of family life that um, 
causes this. There was a huge amount of research, which has now been cut off and suppressed um, by the autism groups of parents and by the NAMI groups of parents who don't want to see any contribution, any that they may have made, or see anything they might do to help many of them, the children. And it comes down to how do you get bucks? Who's going to get the bucks? Well, you're going to get the bucks from saying it's biologic. And it's genetic. And it's genetic. They're also heavily, heavily looking at gen the genetics, genetics of autism. And I have... Uh, I've, I've seen situations where, where someone misunderstood what I was saying about autism after a uh, dinner or a speech or something. So they invited me to their home to meet their child. And um, it was a four or five-year-old boy, and they sat very rigid in their chairs, actually on the couch. I can probably see it. And the little boy was called in. There were no real acknowledgments of any kind. Certainly wouldn't say it was a lovey-dovey relationship. And I said, hi, Tim. Come on over and sit with me here on the floor. Tim came over. And I said, um, well, you know, Tim, let, let's uh, talk a little bit. And he said a few words. And we sort of, I touched him, he touched me. And we were just, you know, kind of getting to know each other. And the parents got enraged at me and basically ended the evening. What? And it's very sad, but it's very real. And so psychiatry in particular encourages parents to think of their children in the same way that got them in trouble. And I remember a child that I, I saw came in with was in terrible trouble at the age of 10. He was hallucinating, which is not necessarily a part of autism. It's just a part of really getting out of touch with reality. And I talked to the parents and they agreed with me that they hadn't been around when this child was young. You know, again, it's very interesting, Peter, but it goes back to a recognition of sovereignty, individual sovereignty and it sounds as though the child's sovereignty has not been recognized and addressed, nor has the child been really taught back and forth in relationship that other human beings have that own uh, essential individuality and identity. Yes, I think that things like that are very real, what you're saying. But when I look at what happens to both uh, people diagnosed as schizophrenic and people diagnosed as autism, and quite frequently they kind of look like they overlap, um, that what's really missing is the quality of loving relationship. You love humans in a way, and dogs and so on, in a way we don't love tables and chairs. Right. Well, and, and of course, that that that's, induces that, sovereignty right there. It has so much to do with sovereignty. I'm not negating anything you're saying, but that what I experience is the essence of what these children need and these people need is a trusting, caring relationship. Yeah, we all do. And yes. they, they might not be able to bear a loving one. I mean, you, you build a relationship of trust and caring with the child or the adult who is that distressed that they have left reality, or in the case of autistic kids, they never got to. Yeah, and nowadays, if you even suggest such a thing, people get really angry, and, and, and they, they 
brandish that phrase, blaming the mother, as if the notion is self-evidently ridiculous that what the parents do could have anything to do with the child's problems. And, and, and yes, I'm glad that, you bring it up. That that just takes my breath away. I mean, that people think that. Um, what is more important in the life of a young child than the quality of that child's relationship with his parents, and particularly his mother? You know, as if what the parents do doesn't make a dime's worth of difference, and that that view just flies so hard in the face of common sense i'm just flabbergasted well you're, and, so, you're so good about this patrick oh, go ahead continue seriously. yeah okay as a convenient example i will use my mother my mother read to me when i was a tiny child she took me to the library with her she discussed with me the books I had read. And we continued doing that as long as we both lived. Hmm. Now, could this have something to do with the fact that I've published four books? Or, you know, was she wasting her time? I would have done that anyway because I was born that way. The the icing on it to me is that parents are always willing to accept responsibility for how well their children do. They are proud as they can be. Yes. Now, I don't expect parents to, uh, let me pick up with, uh, we're just getting near the end of our first segment. Let me come back and I'll pick up with some of the ways that I've actually related to people. World-class care from doctors you can trust, all from the comfort of your home. That is One Wellness. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company launched the One Wellness membership to provide free monthly supplements and unlimited telemedicine access with doctors that share your values. The Wellness Company's chief medical board designed every supplement and medical protocol with your health in mind. From groundbreaking supplements like the Spike Support Formula to unique care like Freedom from Big Pharma. Join a healthcare system that puts your health and well being above the interest of Big Pharma's bottom line. It's the way healthcare should be with a company that shares your values. Go to OutloudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first month of One Wellness. Spike proteins help viruses enter into your cells disrupting your health and your well-being. Global Healing's Foreign Protein Cleanse detoxes your body of spike proteins, which allows your body to repair from within, supporting your immune and respiratory systems, and regulating your inflammatory response. Formulated by Dr. Edward Group and by Dr. Brian Artis, Foreign Protein Cleanse targets and detoxes spike proteins in the body. Go to americaoutloud.shop and get 15% off using the code OUTLOUD. Global healing, giving you the power to take control of your health naturally. And we're back. We're back with Patrick Hahn, who is as articulate as anyone on earth about the fundamental issues of psychiatry. I think the audience is Patrick is really going to love this. Um, 
One of the things that, that this is key over me, I started to tell you about this young man who came to me at 10. And he, he had verbal abilities, but he was diagnosed solidly with autism. I had asked him to come and sit with me and stuff. And I said to, said to the family, listen, it's wonderful that you have recognized that he was kind of in deprivation from you and a lot of other people helped raise him and stuff. Uh, when you were both in the middle of your professional careers. I mean, that's what we professionals, we don't, we're not taught that uh, how important it's going to be if we, uh, in the lives of our children if we're so devoted to our work when they're two and three years old. They just, they, they just saw it. And I said, well, listen, I think I can guarantee you a really wonderful outcome if you just work with me in helping your son. I don't know that I'm going to be spending a lot of time with your son. But then uh, I turned to the boy, I think it's Timmy is the name I'm using. I said, Timmy, um, would you like to um, spend, the, when, when, when was the last time you spent time with your dad alone on the weekend? And uh, before I, he could answer, he's a little slow, dad said, he doesn't want to. He said, oh, well, I'll bet you were inviting him to do dad things rather than kid things. And he looked at me and he said, oh, my God, father. I said, Timmy, would you like to spend some time this weekend with your dad if he did something with you that you enjoyed? And he just said, oh, my gosh, yes, yes, yes. Really bursted. I don't remember his words. It was my words. But he just bursted with enthusiasm about it. And I worked with this family barely seeing the boy. Four, I don't know, half year and a half, maybe. I don't remember exactly. And he has gone on to have a very full and rich life. I live in a small town, Ithaca, New York. We keep track of people and friends, and we let people know each other. And this kid's just thriving away. I think he's out of college now. It's been a while. Um, so this is what you have to do. And even with adults, you can bring them together with their family. Somebody labeled schizophrenic, they're withdrawn, they don't want to get out of bed, they don't want to do anything, they're hearing voices, seeing things. And if the parents are willing to not get into the, all the bad stuff, that's not a requirement, but learn to get into the loving stuff. The gentle, kind, patient communication we need to do with our wounded friends and children. Huge progress is made. And as I love the way you talk about the studies, you're more eloquent than I am talking about the studies and the meta-analyses of the math. Well, that's that's the case, in fact, now with what happens if you treat the family together. And you mentioned um, the studies. I don't think you mentioned they're in the original Finland studies that um, where a whole city and that's the the, the uh, dialogue. Open dialogue. Yeah, open dialogue. That that originated, as you know, I'm sure, out of Finland. And um, what was the name of the town? Do you remember? Um, oh, uh, no, it was in Lapland, West Lapland. Lapland. What was the what was the thank you? What was the city? It's a well known city. Gosh. Uh, but anyway, it turned out that 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 they just made famous that anybody could come with their family if they thought there was a disturbed child and they would do a team approach to helping the family. And that's the essence of that program 
And they actually began to run out of people called schizophrenic who are older than 15 or 16. And they began to run out of a lot of their disability. They began to change that city. Now, we're getting some of these programs in the U.S. now, but I can't I can't think of one that's working. I mean, it's it's very hard to get stuff funded. And I can't keep track of everything, especially with COVID going on in our work. But this is slowly spreading because it just defies all of NIMH's and NIH's funding, all the way the scientists, many of whom may be on this borderline of the of people who can't relate to people who are uh, getting tons and tons of money for all this research. It, um, it's, just, it's just a disgrace. It's just a disgrace and a sham. Yeah, well, um, I mentioned the study of NIMH grants. I'm yeah, you did. Al Galvez is the principal investigator, and he's trying to found a new Soteria house in New Mexico. Soteria House was a project. It started in San Francisco with Lauren Mosher. And uh, they would rent a house in the city. And uh, it was for young people with the first time diagnosis of schizophrenia. And they had lay therapists. uh, Minimal use of neuroleptics. They had a consultant psychiatrist. And he would prescribe neuroleptics if... The clients wanted them. No one was forced to take these drugs. And uh, they uh, it was not a miracle cure, but they achieved outcomes at least equal and in some cases superior to that of a large, well-staffed mental hospital and at less cost. And the yeah. NIH killed the project. Did you ever meet Lauren Mosher? He and I became uh, friends for a while, and he helped me tremendously understand the schizophrenia studies. Oh, huh. yeah, no, I never met him. And um, there were a couple of pieces to that. I mean, there was no in-residence psychiatrist. The in-residence person uh, was uh, a social worker, Alma Men, M-E-N, and, um, and, and they... They, they were in residential homes. They were not in facilities. And there were some wings of the study that didn't do, give any drugs. And then there were some wings of the study, as you're describing. And one of the biggest deals of all is that none of these people got tired of dyskinesia, the bane of these drugs. After a month or two exposure, everybody becomes a potential victim and five to eight percent a year, people exposed for that first year to these drugs will develop these terrible abnormal movements. They can be disabling, they can be uh, disfiguring, and it's a five to eight percent figure in normal, healthy people. By the time you get to be 55 or 60, you have a 50 percent chance. And by the time you get to be my age, you got a hundred percent chance of getting tired of dyskinesia. So they didn't get sicker, they got better, which is a tremendous distinction about these studies. It's so wonderful to be talking with you because I'm I have, don't have anybody talking about this with particularly, and except Ginger, and uh, we haven't been called upon a lot to talk about it. But this is so critical and it's so important that all the studies are there and um, NIMH refused to fund them and the state of California refused to fund them. The insurance companies refused to fund them. 
because, and we know this now so well from being involved in COVID-19 issues, the whole establishment, the elite, are rigged only to suck our power and our money. And that's this bigger issue we're going to get to in the um, in the final segment. Now, you've got another wonderful book, is Prescription for Sorrow, and it's about the what happens to people who take the antidepressants and another on a love, obedience pills. Do you want to get into that? I'm talking... Obedience pills has to do with ADHD, I think. Yeah, I think that would be lovely to look at. People are very interested in that yeah. issue again. That's started to be in the news. Great. Yeah, there was... Uh, yeah, it's... it's uh... It's really distressing. I mean, 50 years ago, uh, the diagnostic category we now call ADHD, it was called hyperactivity back then. And this was a hotly contested diagnostic label that was applied almost exclusively to young boys uh, whose behavior disrupted classrooms and who were fully expected to grow out of it. And now in, in, in uh, you know, I remember, I never even heard of hyperactivity until I was a senior in high school. This was 1977. And <laughs> I was appalled to learn uh, grown-ups were giving little kids speed. And I've changed my mind about a lot of things since then, but that's not one of them. But nowadays, in 2023, ADHD is seen as this crippling, lifelong disorder that requires daily drug treatment from early childhood to the grave. And yeah, I mean, I hear people, you know, just, just grown-ups and, and talking, and I have ADHD the same way, you know, you say, I have a headache and there, there isn't anything to have. This is just a diagnostic label. The, the symptoms of ADHD are so vague in general. Uh, I think anybody could get a diagnosis if he wanted to. And uh, these drugs they use to treat it, they're not benign drugs. The uh, principal drug is... The most commonly prescribed drug is amphetamine. That's the drug which is known on the street as speed. It's not a similar drug. It's the same drug. And uh, now people who take these drugs, they're, they're coming down with Parkinson's disease late in life. So the children who swallow these pills today may be experiencing the ill effects decades from now. There have been some very significant studies of the long-term outcomes. Um, and what tends to happen to many of these children is they're being taught that they have no personal self-control. They're taught if the teacher's being nice, they read from something they've been given that says, you're like a sports car, but your brakes are broken. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Why not just do a sports car and you got to learn to control the control the wheel a little harder, maybe, maybe. But a lot of them are sports cars. A lot of these kids are very, very bright, and um, they may have problems at home that are making them jittery, or they just be be, be normal kids. 
who want some attention, not getting enough, who want some. They they can be almost any. They can be kids who are smart and bored in school. They can be musicians who have music in their heads and it gets in the way. And what they found was that since all these kids were boys, they weren't making enough money. They really wanted a market that included the girl. So they changed it from hyperactivity to attention to um, AD, ADD. And then they put they put in this whole thing about being distracted mm-hmm. so they could get the girls who were looking out the windows and imagining anything from, gee, they wish they really could be an airplane pilot to their wedding. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just took everything human out of the person and made them conform to the classroom. And then it spread to the home as well. But what happens when you tell a child that they cannot control themselves? And what happens when you tell a child, basically, you must take drugs? And then give them drugs that cause agitation. I mean, boy, you want to talk about the worst. They can cause almost anything. That's right. They can make you. But what they cause that they love is it kills the kid's spontaneity. uh, Amphetamine addicts are obsessive, compulsive, constrained people. They may... They may wash their car all day long, get up on a dangerous roof and wash their roof or something bizarre like that. And if you give these pills to chimpanzees, folks, who are maybe free-ranging, they're just as happy in their cages. You make caged children. They'll sit and do OCD things in the cage. They'll chew on the bars or they'll play with dirt, but they'll stop kissing, hugging, playing with and competing with other chimps. They lose their chimp humanity, so to speak. And we've got some terrible studies that came out of giving Ritalin for a few months mostly, but they give them this line that goes along with it that they can't control themselves for mild problems in school, none particular at home. The schools were referring in those days. I've fought that, and to some extent that's been stopped. The schools were referring. And if you go in and you look at these kids when they're 40, there's really good studies. They're no longer taking amphetamines at all. They're very mentally sick people. They become lifelong career mental patients. So every single category of malfunctioning is greater statistically for them than for others. It's obesity is greater. That's from probably mostly the drugs, but also loss of self-control. You've been taught you can't control yourself. There's more criminality. There's more mental hospitalization. Um, there's more single living, living alone. The whole works are bad. And these studies are ignored. They're absolutely ignored. And then they lie if they if anybody brings them up and they say that's ADHD. There's no these people don't even carry an ADHD diagnosis anymore. They yeah. carry horrible things like bipolar, chronic depression, and so on. And there's another aspect to this, which is uh, the market was still hungry. Markets are always additionally hungry. The marketers are hungry. Yes, and the and uh, as a result. ADHD, the concept of ADHD has been expanded actually for a couple of decades, at least now to adulthood. So uh, those adults who are unhappy or edgy or don't like being in their cubicle or 
feel like they can't quite keep up at 60 hour a week demands in a law practice or whatever it is that they do, or they're having trouble on their construction work or whatever, they end up going to the doctor, getting the diagnosis, which is very easy, and then ending up on these pills also. Yeah, I think uh, one of the most, you know, the best known effect of stimulant drugs is agitation. That's what stimulant drugs do. So people take these drugs, kids take these drugs, and then they get a diagnosis of bipolar disorder. Exactly. Yes. And bipolar disorder was extremely rare among adults and unheard of in children until we began dosing children with antidepressants and stimulants. And stimulants, exactly. And then with bipolar disorder, they're they're given these neuroleptic drugs, which are really nasty drugs. You were talking about tardive dyskinesia, you know, the cruel cartoon stereotype of the mentally ill with their faces and bodies twisted in these bizarre postures and expressions. Sadly, there's a lot of truth to that. But that's not an effect of quote-unquote mental illness. That's an effect of neuroleptic drugs. Yeah, there are no associated neurological disorders with anything called a mental illness. I'm not talking about Alzheimer's, which is a physical disease or things like that. But with the things we call mental illness, schizophrenia, manic depressive, bipolar, whatever, anxiety, depression, there's no neurological effects of them. It's all made up. It's not a physical disease. Okay, we will go on to our third segment, and we're going to talk about his. Uh, the, we're going to talk about COVID, folks. But it's, believe me, it's going to be different than what you've heard before. AmericaOutloud.news is beaten to the pulse of our nation. We know when you're angry, troubled, misled, joyful, and thankful. We know you because we are you. Join us as we explore the most important issues of our time. America Out Loud Talk Radio. It's a fight for the soul of humanity. In 2008, People could spend an average of 12 seconds on a task without becoming distracted. Five years later, it was only eight seconds. The digital age is narrowing our attention span. Trouble concentrating or recalling information is frustrating, embarrassing, and kills productivity. Advanced nutrition company, Healthy Cell, created Focus and Recall to boost your brain power. And unlike other supplements that don't work, Focus and Recall is not a pill. It's a patent-pending gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed ingredients to help you immediately sharpen focus, concentrate longer, and strengthen recall. These physician-formulated gels come in a small gel pack. Tear off the top, shoot it down. Thousands of five-star reviews proves it works. Supercharge your brain and see the difference. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. Welcome back. 
Peter Bregan, Ginger Bregan, America Out Loud Pulse is the show um, on AmericaOutloud.news. And we're talking with Patrick Hahn. I want to uh, give a plug to an upcoming TV show that's probably going to be about many of the things we talked about today. You know, every first and third Monday, I'm on the air on the um, TV station of The Pillow Man. Mike Lindell. Mike Lindell TV at 1 p.m. Okay. And I'm, I'm on... <laughs> I'm on with uh, uh, Tamara Scott. Tamara, God bless you, Tamara Scott, and that's and that's going to oh, and that's going to be a now that's going to be before this airs. So no, all right, it this is. will go on, but but you can look it up if you can find a way on on Lindell TV. If you go to Lindell TV and look for their guest or their host. Tamara Scott and look for her shows. Um, um, it may be there. Yes. You can see that Ginger and I are working very hard and have a lot of stuff in our heads all the time. We're juggling a lot. We're juggling a lot. But fortunately, we're well again. We were sick for several months and uh, both of us ended up with pneumonia. So we are very grateful to be whole and uh, back in the back in the game and and loved by so many folks out there in the wider yes. world because of our work. Yes. And for I, those of the that's really amazing. Yeah. And for those of you who know, my 97 year old mother lives with us and she also is completely well from uh, the illness that struck our family. By some mysterious way, we all got an infectious disease at the same time that looked like COVID. Desperately ill for four months or so, but we're all back, we're back. including my 97-year-old mom. Oh, hi, mom. I think she listens to this show every week. I try and remember to put it on for her. So, All right. <clears throat> Your book, which we have not yet seen, you're talking to Patrick, Patrick our guest. Now, our guest, Patrick Hahn. The day the science died. Before we get to talk about this, tell people how to get in touch with you so we don't have to rush it at the end. Yes. Uh, well, my uh, new website, I have a new website with an easy-to-remember domain name, patrickhahn.net. Or you can contact me directly at my email. Again, very easy to remember. Patrick Hahn, no spaces, at hotmail.com. Fabulous. I am really interested in your take on COVID-19 because we haven't talked about it and you have such an acute ability to analyze, amazingly. So what, do you, what is your book about and what is your view on this? It's about the vaccines, uh, I quote-unquote vaccines, these mRNA shots. And um, I concluded there there is no reason for anyone to get these shots. Uh, they don't stop uh, transmission. Uh, without that, you can't even begin to make the case for vaccine mandates. And uh, <clears throat> in the trial, they said they reduced infection but they employed this stupid accounting trick. So they give people the first dose of the Pfizer shot. And then the second dose, 21 days later. And 
They don't start counting cases until seven days after that. So 28 days after the first dose. With Moderna, it was even worse. The two shots were 28 days apart. Then they don't start counting 14 days after that. So they don't count any cases the first 42 days after the Moderna shot. And we know these shots cause COVID in the first week or two after administration. Public Health England, the Danish Ministry of Health, the BMJ all have stipulated this. So you're giving people a preparation that causes COVID. You don't count those cases. You don't count any cases in the in the 28 days after the first uh, dose of the Pfizer shot or 42 days after the first dose of the Moderna shot. And then you stop counting a short time after that. That is how they got this ridiculous factoid that the shot was 95% effective in preventing cases. And the figures plucked off the dashboards of public health agencies uh, charged with enforcing vaccine mandates employ this same stupid accounting trick. They don't count cases in the first 28 days or first 48 days after the first dose. And then they stop counting. And, 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 and then every time you get a booster shot, you miraculously rejoin the ranks of the unvaccinated for seven days in the case of the Pfizer shot, 14 days in the case of the Moderna shot. And these cases, they don't even count all deaths or all serious adverse events. They claim the shot reduces COVID-related deaths and COVID-related adverse events. But as I said, they haven't shown that because they're not counting all the cases. And that's a totally meaningless endpoint anyway. The only endpoints that should matter to you as an individual are all deaths and all serious adverse events. And they're not even claiming. In fact, their own data shows uh, an increase Pfizer's and Moderna's own data show an increase in serious adverse events and deaths. Uh, and um, there's no sub Some people try to find a happy middle ground. Well, if you're elderly, you should get the shot. There's no data supporting that. There's no data supporting any subpopulation that benefits from this shot. And then uh, the repeated booster shots make... COVID infection more likely, uh, the efficacy of the Pfizer shot drops to less than zero five months after the first dose, uh, the third dose. And anybody with a working knowledge of the immune system could have predicted this was going to happen. Um, that's called immune exhaustion. It's a well-known phenomenon, and it's the basis of... Uh, of therapy, that's how they, of uh, desensitization therapy for al allergies. You repeatedly expose the patient to an allergen and the immune system finally just gives up and stops trying to fight the invader, which is fine if you are uh, trying to desensitize someone to an allergy, but it's not a good thing if we're talking about a potentially deadly virus. And all hype aside, 
COVID is potentially deadly for people who get the most severe presentation. So they take, and uh, as I pointed out in my book, they've hit every button they could to systematically overcount COVID deaths. And uh, so you start with wildly exaggerated estimates of the efficacy of the vax in preventing infection, wildly exaggerated estimates of the deadliness of COVID. And that's how you get this ridiculous factoid that the shot saved 20 million lives, as the New York Times claimed recently. That's not possible. There's 5 billion people in the world who've gotten the shot. So I divide 20 million into 5 billion, and I get 250. So they're claiming a 1 in 250 reduction in the rate of death. And yet in trials with tens of thousands of participants, there were more deaths in the treatment arm than the placebo arm. I'd like to know, I'd like to see someone well better versed in statistics than I am to calculate the possibility of that happening if the reduction in rate death is one in 250. I'd be shocked to learn that possibility is as high as one in a million. So this was the most colossal failure in vaccine history, a vaccine that makes you more likely to get the index condition. What about your, uh, by the way, that's brilliant. I love your analogies there to the um, getting an injection to weaken your immune system's response to the offending agent. And that's exactly what happened with COVID-19 and their multiples. The European Union has some experts that have recognized that and have come out and said- With the vaccines. Yeah, with the vaccines, we don't recommend giving these boosters. Is that gonna affect America? Not much so far. And then I'm not sure how much it's reduced their use in Europe either. Some countries are, are outlawing them now from what I can tell. What about your your analysis of the damage done, the actual death count on um, these? Uh, they're not vaccines, really. They're they're they're, they're GMO experiments. They're uh, genetic experiments on people, turning us into GMO people with these things. Yeah, we're we'll we'll be it'll be uh, years before we uncover the full truth, but. Now, uh, since the VAX was rolled out, death rates among life insurance policyholders, who pretty much by definition are healthy prime age adults, have skyrocketed. Life insurance statistics don't lie. And the last time I checked, insurance actuaries were not known for being wild-eyed conspiracy theorists. And even if it isn't the shot causing this, what is? This is an unprecedented rise in mortality among prime age adults. Why aren't they moving heaven and earth to find out what causes it? And rack my brains, the only answer I can come up with is because they don't want to know. Yes. How much do you have the opportunity to talk with? See, Ginger and I are talking with a lot of colleagues and we are listening to a lot of people. We're part of the, what we call the health freedom movement. Uh, do you work almost entirely on your own and come to the same conclusions that uh, 
dozens of people working together are coming to? Or are you also kind of involved in some way with the other researchers? Well, I attended uh, the, the meetings of the expert panel convened by Senator Ron Johnson. Okay, so you're right there. Yeah, I got to hear, and I, I reported on this firsthand in my book, and I got to hear from some of the biggest names, uh, Peter McCullough, Pierre Corey, Jay Bhattacharya, uh, um, Aaron Cariarty. I'll, I'll never forget that moment when Aaron Cariarty told us, Dr. Cariarty told us that in California, you can't get a medical exemption from vaccination even if you've been harmed by the COVID vaccine. And he said, there is no clearer in contraindication to taking a drug than having already been harmed by that drug. And then he added angrily, a four-year-old could have figured that one out. Yeah, this is very good. I'm really, uh, I'm really impressed. I, I really want to read your book. So you're going to send it to me. Yes, yes, I definitely will. And I think that, um, you know, we can have you back to talk about the more of this and see, see if we, you know, I've lost, I guess, lost track of you. And you, you've always been one of my very best guests in psychiatry. And you're uh, you're being one of my best guests in COVID nineteen. Why am I not surprised? <laughs> um, why would I even why would I even wonder? But um, any other thoughts you have on COVID that you'd like to share with us? We've got about four minutes left. Well, as I mentioned the last time I spoke to you, this time it's personal. Uh, medically, it made no sense for me to get the shot. I'd already had the COVID, and I'd recovered fully. But I got the shot to protect my health. Because if I hadn't gotten it, I would have been unemployed and broke and homeless. That would have been hazardous to my health. In 28 years of teaching, I never missed a day of work due to illness. Less than 30 days after my booster, I had a stroke. Oh, my. Yeah, that's I'm so point. sorry. Well, it looks like you've recovered a great yeah, I, deal, and I'm grateful for that. Compared to a lot of people, I got off lightly. Yeah, it sounds like it skipped your thinking processes. You sound really good, and you, do, and you look good, too. Um, but uh, that is make it personal. It's become personal for all of us in some way or another. We know people have died soon after the vaccines. I think almost everyone knows someone who's died now. Yeah. Either that or they have people in their circle who have lost loved ones in their families, yeah. you know, so it's just first or second degree of separation. And think about it, folks. <clears throat> think about how many people do you know who were seriously injured or killed by COVID-19? Um, we're about the only ones we know and we think it was a little special something meant for us, maybe. We got very, very sick, but we didn't die. But we don't know anybody else that got probably as sick as we did on COVID. Do yeah, we know anybody No, I don't think we do. Now, how many fo folks do you know or have heard about who died from the vaccines? Or how much illness have you had from the vaccine, vaccine or your friends have had from the you vaccine? You have to remember, though, that uh, one of my best friends, her 
very elderly mother died supposedly of COVID, but she'd received the vaccine a week earlier. Yeah. So, of course, it was actually the vaccine. It wasn't COVID. Yeah, I think that confuses a lot of people yeah. who were lay people. Carnage in nursing homes when yes. they put out the vaccine. They became like Nazi murder centers, actually. Uh, quite literally here in New York. Yeah. It was an extermination of the elderly. Yes. I don't know if I've said that on the air before. Well, we've got one minute, a little bit more than one minute left. Patrick, it's so good to be back in touch with you. And um you have any closing thoughts? Well, I'm going on a fact-finding mission to Africa in a couple of weeks to see for wow. myself how the pandemic restrictions have affected people there. So that's the big story here. That's well, exciting. that's going to be interesting. And some of the African the leaders who were against the vaccines mysteriously died. Are you going to be able to get any information on that? Oh, I, I, that's not on my agenda, tell the truth. But uh, yeah, but but uh, there have been people in vaccines because you know Bill Gates and others have worked to give terrible vaccines. They mixed in and uh, black communities. They mixed in to the flu vaccine um, substances which prevented pregnancy. This was African nations sterilized people there, and uh, they've done things like that also in India. Um, so. Uh, some of the poorer nations and areas of the world are much more alert to the danger of vaccines than we here in North America. But they suffered from the lockdowns and all the other uh, all the other draconian measures that came out in the in well, 2020. Um, keep us in mind, and we'll okay. follow up with your visit to Africa. Okay, sounds Patrick great. Patrick Hahn, thank you for being on America Out Loud Post.